Today, September 23rd, 2010. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Tay Nedoff. Tay is an assistant professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering at the University of Minnesota. His lab is working out mechanisms of seizure by looking at network dynamics in real neurons and hybrid systems using dynamic clamp and imaging techniques. His research covers many scales of analysis from single neurons to large networks. Um, these days, he's also looking at how anti-epileptic drugs affect network synchrony to bridge the gap between how altering an ion's channel activity leads to large-scale changes in rhythmicity of a network. So, hi, Tay. Hi. Around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. And Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. Our two MVPs. So, um... First, could you just really quickly define seizure? Uh, so I was at a conference on seizure prediction a year ago, and the conclusion of the conference was, by experts in the field, that we really should come to a universal <laughs> description of what we think a seizure is. <laughs> so unfortunately, there isn't a really great description. I think of seizures as sustained high neuronal activity Um and, and that's sort of most generic. And, and there are obviously differences between clinical seizures and the kind you induce in slices. Or are they generally? And there's lots of different kinds of clinical Right, seizures. there are many different that's right. with many different origins. That's and, right. Right. So it's kind of a final common path, but we haven't really got consensus on what the actual well, so components seizures, of seizure are other than... It's uh, a symptom, and, and so we've classified a whole bunch of diseases that have this similar seizure symptom, but it, it doesn't really mean that they're the same. They're not the same kinds of seizures, and they're not necessarily the same diseases. So, okay. so how much is, it, is there a, a, a classification of seizures that a basic, you know, distinction of, of uh, you know, categorization of the different parts and this stuff? Is that a complete mess, or is that, started, is that broken down into a handful of types that people roughly agree on. So clinically, there's there's very well-defined types of seizures. So grand malls and petite malls and absence. And, and people agree on those? Generally, yeah. From a clinical standpoint, they're fairly well. I'm not a clinician, so I'm not as familiar with those as I should be. But um, yes, there's very nice descriptions. What I feel we still lack is a real dynamical description of what these different diseases are and and the different kinds of seizures. And we may be classifying some kinds of symptomatic seizures as the same kind, whereas the the fundamental causes of them may be different and should be treated differently. Okay. And we're definitely going to talk more about that. But but I I thought first we could talk um, a little bit about the role of synchrony in epilepsy. And and because I'm confused, because I thought um, the classical idea is that it's just hyper-synchrony, hyper that um, networks just go crazy, they're completely synchronized, um, and that that's the basis of seizure. But but it sounds like some of your work, just from the little bit I've looked at about you, kind of characterizes seizures as showing a, a desynchronization, at least at some point in the seizure, whether or not it's the transition state or not. Maybe you can explain some of that. And also, I guess, tied into some of this is the question of excitatory versus inhibitory networks being the trigger. Could you could kind of lay out some of those debates and where you weigh in, just some, just to give us a kind of landscape? Sure. So for about 100 years, the central dogma of epilepsy was it's, it's hypersynchronous neuronal activity. And as a grad student, I was dumb enough to ask 
well, what what is hypersynchronous neuronal activity? So my advisor with Steve Schiff, who is a neurosurgeon, said, you know what, Tay, you should patch clamp two cells and measure the synchrony between the two of them and just see what happens and see what you measure. And you know, at the time, we were very interested in nonlinear dynamics and nonlinear measures. So we, we spent a lot of time looking at how you measure synchrony. And in all the different ways we measured synchrony, the conclusion we came with was that between seizures, synchrony was relatively high. And then during the seizure, sort of at the beginning of the seizure, synchrony dropped dramatically. Um, and then towards the end of the seizure, we saw an increase in synchrony again. And so the, we didn't really understand the mechanisms. We've, we People have now gone back and looked at human EEG and um, well, while there's lots of activity in, in a lot of neurons which causes um, depolarization of the cells, so the neurons you know see tons and tons of inputs, the precise timing of those inputs are not you know precise enough to say that they're correlated. They actually come in at very, very different times, and actually they almost seem to even prefer to come in at different times, forcing so two neurons sitting next to each other will see inputs at, at very different times, and in, indicating to us it's actually... Um, non-synchronous activity at the peak of a seizure. So why... So I think the kind of synchronous... Yeah. When, when you say that people say that seizures are synchronous activity, is that the kind of synchronous they're talking about? Because that's... Yeah. I mean, that's a very strict definition of synchronous. Mm-hmm. And I hear people yeah. saying that if two cells increase their firing rate over the same two-second period, that yeah. they are somehow synchronous because they were firing faster over that two-second period. And so I'm confused about what should what should I call synchronous? Can I call anything I want synchronous, or should synchrony really mean that the two cells fire within a millisecond? Most definitely. You can call anything you want synchronous. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and this is the other side of, of there's a lot of definitions. It seems like synchrony should be obvious, but there's a lot of definitions of synchrony as well. Um, and so there's the question of, of two neurons... Uh, firing exactly at the same time, there's no doubt. Everybody considers that synchronous. Okay, but what happens if two neurons just increase their firing rate at the same time? Is that synchrony or is that... And, and my definition is that that's not synchronous. They have to actually be firing at the same time. And then there's the question of if the two neurons are firing but at some time difference, but... Whenever cell A fires, cell B always fires five milliseconds later. Is that synchrony? And, and that's in, in some definitions is a very strong form of synchrony. It's, it's a phase locking, even though the two neurons aren't firing at the exact same time. And then what we got really interested in with um, as a grad student when I worked on it was when two neurons have a very complex relationship that it may not be one neuron fires and then neuron B fires immediately after neuron A, but that there's a very strict relationship to it, but it's a very complex relationship. And can we detect those kinds of interactions? Is that some form of synchrony? Or how does that relate on this continuum of no relationship at all to, to you know, strict phase-locked synchrony? So maybe rather than complaining that people who study seizures haven't really categorize them well enough. Maybe we ought to categorize the sorts of dependencies between neurons. Yeah. It seems like that ought to be an easier job yeah. to, to work out and, and uh, yeah. would set the stage for defining the terms that would help other people. <laughs> so I'm interested in the really complicated one. So in some ways, any time that you know that neuron A fires, that tells you something 
reduces the possibilities for neuron B, yeah. then that's some kind of interrelatedness yeah. that we could, I guess if we wanted to, we could call them synchrony. And I think that the thing that all people call synchrony, the thing that they all have in common is that. It's that knowing neuron A reduces your uh, uncertainty about neuron B. Yeah. So... Uh, when you say complicated relationships, how complicated are you thinking about? Are you thinking about, if I know that neuron A fired today, then I know that neuron B is more likely to fire three days from now. Uh, yeah. Would that count somehow? They're phase-locked over some enormous time scale. Um, well, you have to compare it to some null hypothesis and show... So, given that cell B will almost always fire sometime in the next three days, presuming it's still alive... <laughs> um, is you know that's not a strong prediction. Um, so even though it may be true, um, the null hypothesis would show that it's is no difference. You have to have some something to compare it to, some kind of expected relationship, and look to see if it's different than expected. And so we usually use a null hypothesis that cell B is just firing randomly or periodic, and then we look to see if the the how much you know about B is more than you would know just. You know, that it's more because you know what A is doing um, that gives you more information about B over just a random background. Well, you already made this distinction, which is kind of inherent. I mean, these are all uh, issues that popped up in the time, rate versus time code debate, right? Uh, so a lot of a question of time scale, right? Because we talked about, you know, co-modulation of firing rates is synchrony. I mean, if you know yeah. one's firing, it's more likely than something else is firing. Yeah. And you kind of broke it down by making the time scale separating by when the, the when the neuron fired. Um, and basically, what, the time scale that you broke faster versus slow was kind of an inner spike interval. Yes. Um, and that's... That's pretty easy to do if the neurons are fairly periodic. Um, but you also have the question of when versus whether another neuron fires, right? Yeah. And not whether the, the spikes are aligned or about whether they have another spike at all. And so you have this other dichotomy, too. So you, yeah. you, you end up talking about different time scales of synchrony and different types of phase synchrony and correlation of spikes and... All of them, none of the measures, all the measures have implicit assumptions, and often those assumptions are not, are not set. So you're stuck with kind of a hodgepodge of, of intuitions of either correlations or phase locking or something yeah. like that. Um, but it seems like inherently one, one natural thing is to talk about a, a time scale uh, of, of synchrony. And some of the stuff about you know, I know in normal states that uh, if you look at correlation times of um, either from intracellular recordings or not, you often have a, a narrow time window of correlation and a broader time window of correlation. Yeah. So as people started looking at breaking down those different components and looking whether those go up or down, say, before or leading up to seizures, I mean, do they start to break it down in terms of time scale like that? Mm, that's a great question. I haven't seen that. Yeah, I'm going to back back up a little bit here. Can you just tell us um, what what parameters actually um, determine synchrony in a network? I mean, there's this this has been 
Yes, yeah, so a lot, and I think our listeners would probably benefit from hearing it. So I, I think there's three things you need to know about a network to, to determine how it's going to synchronize. One is um, the synapses between the neurons. Uh, one is the, uh, the the network topology, how they're all wired together. And the third is the dynamics of the neurons themselves. So you can change any one of those three, and, and all of them are somehow in flux in a, in a normal brain. Um, and that somehow the brain keeps things stable because most of the time we don't seize, which maybe in a way that's almost as surprising or, uh, as the fact that we have seizures. Um, but what are the mechanisms that keep all of those things in balance? And it may not be a unique solution um, to how you transition into seizures by changing any of those parameters. Um, and, and therefore, there might be different kinds of epilepsies, you know, different kinds of seizures, as, as there obviously are clinically. Um, so what you just defined is right for a closed network. It seems to me there ought to be a fourth parameter that represents shared input from the outside. So even in the case of if we take the whole nervous system and say we're somehow going to encompass the whole nervous system in our thinking, there's sensory input that gets structured and structures activity in the brain. And don't some seizures get started by structured sensory input, uh, visually evoked seizures or seizures or uh, auditory ones? Yes. Most definitely. <laughs> it was total oversight on my part to say it's only three things. Um, and there, there are many seizures which you can uh, induce by hyperventilation or that the famous one from the Pokemon videos, the flashing videos inducing seizures. Um, you know, some people brushing their teeth, stimulating their gums um, can induce seizures. Um, there's many external forces. And, of course, it's usually some external force which is... What starts it? So I think one of the reasons that people have this notion about synchrony is because of these like visual uh, induction of seizures that happens with light flashes at certain frequencies, which are probably synchronizing a lot of neurons in the visual system, um, and they are broad field uh, images, so they they cover the entire visual field or a big huge piece of it, and then they're going at some frequency that you, one could easily imagine in training neurons, like yes. eight, 8 hertz or something like that, which isn't that 15, hard to 15. Yeah. Not so hard to entrain neurons at that frequency. Yeah. And, do, I mean, is there, any, is there anything to learn from those trigger stimuli, or do you think that they're just, a, that that's a red herring? No, I think that's it's a great tool to understand how these things get started and why. Unfortunately, um, they're, they've been used for fMRI studies because you can put these patients in and you can induce them to seize, whereas many kinds of seizures just happen spontaneously and getting them to coincide with somebody in an fMRI is hard. So they've studied these and they can actually see the development to the seizure in the fMRI. There's so some kind of resonance in the visual system at that frequency if you... Yeah, when so I was a graduate student, we used to flash strobe lights at each other and yeah. Close our eyes and see these uh, patterns and things like that. I'm yeah, so I just built a pair of LSD goggles like Bart Ehrmantraut has, a, has where you can put in these periodic stimuli and see these patterns emerge. And, and it happens right at those same frequencies. What's the design of the LSD goggle? Uh, it, it's a pair of um, 
uh, ping pong balls as diffusers, and then you put LEDs over it, and then you um, we have a little oscillator circuit that you can adjust the frequency of, and it just flashes, and we can change the colors, and you can adjust the colors the, the colors by pushing uh, buttons and the and knob to change the frequency, and as you play with it, you just see these amazing patterns. So the ping pong emerge. balls are to, are to make broad fields to reduce right. spatial any spatial structure in this. Yeah, you want to stimulate the entire visual field uniformly and get these... And so uh, it's strictly temporal, not yeah. spatial. You've and played with these, right? You, I have a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, of course, LSD goggle is a provocative name, but they're... Uh, yes. Strobe goggles. Strobe goggles would be a better... But that's not what Bart's going to call them. No. <laughs> So is there, what about the, the induction paradigm? Sorry to that. <laughs> I apologize for that. But uh, um, what about the induction protocols for in vitro studies? Did, uh, to how do they? How do you generally induce seizures? Are there a few things that people do, uh, and perhaps more thought should be given how you get things going uh, to study things in vitro? Yeah. So there's there are. Um, in human patients, it really depends on the patient, and you know some patients can really induce. I've seen videos of people brushing their teeth to induce seizures, and it's just frightening for them to do it. But clinically, it's really important because you can see it and you can see the whole evolution of it. Um, in rats, you can stimulate really high frequencies. The first couple of times you stimulate the the brain of a rat, not much happens. But if you continually stimulate very fast pulses and then repeat day after day just for a second, it, very quickly they start to develop seizures, and it's a phenomenon called kindling. So only particular parts of the brain, are there, or will that work anyway? There are some areas of the brain which are very sensitive to it, um, but you can almost kindle most parts of the brain, of the cortex. So a lot of seizures have a sort of a place in the brain where they get started, a, a focus, in, that, in those situations, are you creating a focus so the seizure is starting from the place that you are stimulating? Or I thought Isn't this another source of debate, whether there's a focal starting point or it's just sort of a, a generative network thing that eventually finds itself in a seizure? Yes, so it depends on the kind of seizure. That's one of the sort of defining features, whether it seems to come from a particular spot or whether it starts globally. Um, uh, I think that the kindling, um, I don't think they spontaneously generate seizures very well from a focus. And it turns out that it's, there are not very good models of spontaneously occurring seizures from a focus. There are better spontaneous occurring that starts globally. And, and some hypotheses are that those seizures start in deeper areas um, or they start up on the cortex and then get transmitted through the rest of the brain through the thalamus. Um, and it's a very different mechanism than the focus that stays on the cortex and then just sort of moves or, or entrains the areas around it. So, so it seems like different cortical mechanisms. structures like the hippocampus and the cerebral cortex are especially sensitive to this. It doesn't happen as much in... Well, maybe the thalamus is another sensitive place, but you don't hear too much about cerebellar seizures and or spinal cord seizures. Are there things like that? Um, do they always have behavioral effects? Like, do you always see someone seizing? I mean, no. Yeah. So, the, well, there's called subclinical seizures. So, the, the clinical seizures are the ones you can see, and then if you have an electrical recording, 
you can see sometimes the seizure before you see clinical, and those are subclinical seizures. Um, I was just wondering if there's some circuit. I mean, I know this is something that have been has been discussed a lot that there's circuit properties that make a part of the brain more susceptible to seizures than others, like recurrent excitation, for example. Yeah. Seems like a likely thing for creating regenerative activity, and some parts of the brain generate a lot more regenerative activity than others. Yeah. Uh, so, I'm just uh, if I'm trying to uh, sort of focus in on on what we think we do know about about seizures, which is um, even though they can be triggered from somewhere else, they generally are the result of some local circuit re-exciting itself in an out-of-control way. And, it, and, and so there are ideas like maybe there isn't enough inhibition or maybe the excitation is uh, synapses have become too strong or something like that. Yeah. But there are also notions like maybe just ion channels are out of balance and that the and that regenerative ion channels in the cells are making individual neurons more sensitive. So all of those things have been tested in, in experiments that have gone o- on over many decades. So, so there is a, there's a division in the epilepsy field that some people who sort of believe the cellular hypothesis of a seizure origin, and then there's people who sort of believe the network hypothesis of the seizure origin. Um, I think it's a false dichotomy between those two. Uh, the networks are dependent on the cellular activity, and the, the cellular activity is dependent on how everybody is wired together, um, and you can't separate those two. And it's changes at the cellular level change the network properties and, and make that network more seizure-prone or less seizure-prone if you're on the other hand, the cellular changes are pretty subtle. I know that yes. uh, when people first started recording from cells in epileptic foci, they were expecting to see epileptic neurons That's who right. would have seizures pretty much on their own. That's right. And that doesn't happen. If you isolate a self, a cortical pyramidal cell from an epileptic part of the brain, you don't see that cell exhibiting seizures on its own. But so they, somehow it's something about their interactions that creates the that's right, and and because there are so many neurons and so many connections in the brain, subtle changes at the cellular level can really change properties at a, at a network scale just by the sheer numbers of neurons that are involved. So I don't believe you have to have a dramatic change in order to really result in, in changes in the network behavior. But there we enter a part of neuroscience that we don't have a very good handle on. Exactly. And that's where that's why I... My work goes experimentally as well as a lot of theoretical stuff because I feel we haven't developed a lot of the formalism to really understand uh, network behaviors. So can you talk about some of the tools that you use, specifically dynamic clamp hybrid systems, to look at some of these questions and how, how maybe uh, you know, you're able to ask questions that people weren't able to ask a few years ago? Or, or yes, so the, there's some really neat tools now where we can... Um, patch clamp has been around for a while where we stick an electrode into a cell and, and because this electrode is a glass tube with a, um, a hole in the end, we, we pop a hole into the neuron, we can inject a lot of current into the cell so we can stimulate it and do a lot of things. And it's a really, because of the recordings from inside the cell, we get really high fidelity recordings. But what, uh, the last 10 years or so, um, an exciting development has been that we can, uh, 
digitize the signals coming from the neuron and and supply it to a computer, and then we can run some kind of model on the computer, like um, a model of a synapse, or we can run a model of an ion channel, and then we can use that to inject current back into the neuron. We can turn this around from measuring the voltage at the cell to calculating how much current and injecting that current in, in a hundredth of a millisecond, so very fast time scales. And we can then allows allow us to have a real neuron with some virtual parts to it. And we can, uh, you know, one example is we can patch clamp two cells, and then generally the probability of patching two cells that are directly connected is very small. But because we can couple them through the computer, we can now make a network of two reciprocally coupled cells um, and then measure their behavior of that network. So my a lot of the preliminary work I've done is studying synchrony in two-cell networks because we can make two-cell networks coupled through virtual synapses using these dynamic clamp, which is... And then we can uh, wash on an anti-epileptic drug and measure how it changes synchrony in those two-cell networks. In principle, we could embed a, a single real cell in a completely fake network yeah. uh, that, and try to see the emergence of epilepsy out of, uh, out of, out of that interaction. That, yeah. yeah is, we, I've gone as far as doing two real neurons and one virtual cell. I have so not, it's a, wave, a ways away still, I guess, from the but, whole cortex. I don't... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Three up to 10 to 11 is... <laughs> There's a few orders of magnitudes between. Not that there's anything wrong with three cells. I, you, you should go ahead. I'm already it. overwhelmed <laughs> with three cells. <laughs> well, actually, that's kind of a, a, a kind of a, a, a maybe a point to jump off on in terms of being overwhelmed with three cells. It seems like a lot of what you've been doing, and it's kind of why you're so creative, is that you take these. Uh, uh, you take various ideas, various theoretical ideas, and then just test them out. Because it seems like we, you know, bridging this kind of single neurons and networks, we have these standard ideas. People have ideas at the network level, or they have ideas at the neuron level, because that's the thing that they study. They either study those, and they have these concepts that work at one level or the other. Um, and you, you kind of just take take in various uh, assumptions and, and kind of see what happens. Yeah. Uh, and see if we can understand whether they happen because you're mixing um, things at, 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 at different levels. For example, you know, someone that works at, at the single cell level, and if they're going to think about how it might work in a, a network, people do it all the time, and this is not an unreasonable thing to do. Just assume random conductivity because we don't know what the conductivity is, right? And that's the only thing we can, what else can we think of? We don't, we don't have the ideas to think about much else. And so if you actually go on and then actually think about the network level, that's not so great. Um, so there's other ways of starting to break down networks, but we don't understand how they how that interacts with the things that people think of at the single cell level. Yeah. So one of the things you can do is you just do it, right? And that's what you have done in some simple models, and then test what happens and take it into uh, kind of real neurons. And so you get started... I find it very interesting in the sense that you get started with these ideas that we don't understand very well, and then you do experiments that you have to also don't understand very well, yeah. and you have to kind of figure it out. And so the, a lot of the game is to try to figure out the intuitions that are based on putting things together rather than the intuitions of what's comfortable at different levels. 
So I don't know if, it, if that's the way a lot of what you do feels and, and how kind of what the challenges of doing that are. Yeah. So one of the things, I made some models of network topology and and changed parameters in it. So we started with a small world network, and then we changed the number of long-distance connections. So it starts off as a ring of neurons, and you put some random connections in it. And then um, I, I could reduce this model down to a very simple equation and show that as we, we change the number of long-distance connections, suddenly we transitioned to seizures, and we transitioned into... Uh, bursts, bursting behavior. So we see normally epilepsy has two different features of it, which is one of the interruptible bursts and the other seizures. So bursts are much shorter and seizures are longer. And um, so we could see where the transitions in this network would happen. Um, but what I knew was I, we don't know how many local connections are or how many random connections are on a network um, so we just had to leave that as a free parameter and look to see how things changed as a function of these two parameters. Um, but we've gone back and said, well, we need to go and actually measure from the brain what are these connections and how are they structured. And so we looked at the literature and how people are characterizing networks and found that it was sort of, I, I would say, clumsy in that there was a you measure a whole bunch of things in the network, all sorts of what they call motifs, so how you can wire three cells together. And it didn't seem to... Um, it, it doesn't give much intuition how if one of those motifs change, how does that change the property of the network? So we came up with a, a new way to sort of... Uh, so Dwayne Nightcamp, who's a mathematician, said, well, here's... Maybe we could talk about what we call second-order statistics of, of connections between neurons, so the probability... How, when, if a pair of neurons are already connected, how does that affect more connections for one of those cells? Whether it receives more, the, one connection influences its probability getting another connection. But the neat thing was when we, when we looked at those, um, second order statistics, we could tie some of those directly to how they influence synchrony. And now we have a way to measure networks and determine exactly how that affects. And we got to go back to the slice and record from neurons and, and actually measure how the network and is wired together. Um, hopefully this new formalism will give us a good idea of how it is. And then put in some perturbation, like make the slices seize or take them from epileptic animals and see how it's rewired and, and try to interpret whether that rewiring is... Um, actually enhancing the possibilities of the patient, the, the rat having more seizures or actually preventative. And we still don't know answers to that. We know there are changes, but are they uh, beneficial or, or pathological? So were there, those early networks, did they, the neurons that you'd use, were they phase neurons to start with, or did you try different kind of neuron models at each node? Because then yeah. you start to talk about the interactions of the two things, whether they're the analysis with one neural model is different than the other. Yeah, so so there are so many different kinds of model neurons out there that when we started looking at topology, we had to ask ourselves, is the phenomenon we're seeing just a function of that kind of model neuron that we used, and would it be different if we used a different model? And so we did the simulations using four different kinds of models and found the exact same transition. So you may not, there were details that were different, and we had to make sure the models had, on the, the properties we thought were important, that were similar. Like, you know, given that a presynaptic neuron, how does that 
increase the probability of the postsynaptic neuron firing fire, but we saw the same transitions in the networks independent of the cell type. And that's that's a difficult difficult problem. Like Eugene Isakevich said, you know, everybody's using these integrating fire neurons, and they're just very simplistic. It's not a great model, but everybody uses it because they can reduce it down and, and and solve it. But that doesn't mean that that property is generalizable. And you have to then go test it with other models to really determine if it's generalizable. Unfortunately. In most of my models, um, it's much easier to think about periodically firing neurons, and as you get to more complicated models, you get more complicated behaviors, and describing those behaviors and their influence in the network, that it gets hairy very quickly. And so I feel in ways very challenged that I'm sticking with the simplistic, but as many possible models that fit that simplistic. So it, it's, it's true that a lot of what you're doing is working, making models of neurons that that fire in the absence of synaptic input that fire rhythmically. That's right. And that's what you mean by periodically uh, firing neurons. And yes. uh, lots of models of neurons have a resting membrane potential, and that's where they go when they are not stimulated. Yeah. But, but very few neurons are really quiet for a really long period of time. So in some sense, all cells are firing. And the question is when, not whether. And then... Uh, once you take a periodically firing neuron and put it into a network so it's getting synaptic input, it becomes less periodic. Yes. And and so you might look at it and say, well, is that a periodic neuron that is being perturbed? Or is that a, uh, a, a cell that has a resting membrane potential that is being made to fire? And it yeah. might be hard to tell the difference. Yeah. Does it make a difference? Yes, but I think at times we have to sort of go down one route or the other in order to make a, a formalism where we can really determine what's going on. And the moment I'm going down the formalism of let's just assume they're all periodically firing and then they're all coupled together, um, uh, it makes it easier for certain kinds of mathematical analyses. Um, I don't think it's completely correct. It's sort of an assumption about something that you can't know for sure in a general way. Yeah. So you know it for a particular kind of neuron. So you know that if you isolate a cortical pyramidal cell that it won't fire periodically. But you also see cortical pyramidal cells firing periodically when they are depolarized by synaptic input. Yeah. And so um, uh, so I guess what you're thinking is, well, I will imagine the case of the pyramidal neuron that's depolarized by synaptic input and it's firing periodically. Is that the line of thought? Yeah. And it may not apply to the other case as well, but um, it gives us a, a formalism which we can make predictions about. And, and what's surprising about this formalism is it seems to work through much more cases than the mathematicians would guess that it would. I mean, it seems to... We can mathematicians don't guess. Guess, mathematicians don't okay, guess, okay, and they, yeah. they insist that we cannot extend this beyond <laughs> a very narrow set of, of parameters, which, as, as I feel um, I am justified in doing and let the mathematicians explain to me later why it's wrong, I break a lot of rules a lot of times, mm -hmm. and um, things seem to, to still work, which is... Like it's spoken like an engineer. That's right. That does sound like an engineer. <laughs> yes. Hey, is it an engineer? I don't know what to say. <laughs> oh, I'm slowly losing my identity. And 
<laughs> I come from a neuroscience background, and to be called an engineer seems surprising to me. Even though I'm a biomedical engineering department. <laughs> and teaching engineering to engineering. And teaching signals and systems, yeah. So I have a question going back to these motifs, because... If we take two neurons, we imagine all the ways they can be connected together, which are not very many different ways. No, that's the beauty of it. <laughs> and, and then we imagine three neurons, and we imagine all the ways they can be connected together, and now there's more. Yeah. Uh, is there something magic about three? Can we stop, or do we have to do this now with four and five and six? Well, we think that if you can describe the two connections, so the second-order statistics... By getting those correct, you can actually predict the distribution of all the three-cell connections that you, you see. So uh, we don't think... We uh, think the three-cell connections is already one step more complicated than you need. That you can actually describe almost everything with two-cell connections, um, but that, that makes a lot of assumptions. And some of those assumptions are that you know the neuron sees what it sees and it can't really make its decision on how many what's happening with the connections of the neurons around it. Um, in a lot of the network theory stuff, you can add connections depending on what's happening in the entire network, but a neuron can't see the entire network. It sees its inputs and its outputs and it has to make its decision upon that. And therefore there's not much information beyond what we consider a second-order statistic. So most neurons see, like, 10,000 inputs. Yeah. So do I have and to think... send 10,000 outputs. So or, do I have to think about... Why is it that I only have to think about two other cells in the circuit when I'm thinking about that? Oh, no, no, no. It's making its decisions on how many more connections to send out or take in based upon the count of inputs and outputs. It can't look at other cells and their numbers of connections to decide oh, certainly, to yes. set up to send up more I was just thinking about what it is that's special about groups of three neurons and their possible connectivity patterns that makes me not have to worry about groups of 10,000 neurons and their possible connectivity patterns. Well, we think it's groups of two is all you need to worry about. Yeah, <laughs> so you said that input before, and, the output, <laughs> and the three cells is an emergent property from the two-cell statistic. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a, that's an empirical statement, right? It's just like it. It's just like uh, well, it's just like what you were uh, you were uh, you've done with a random network has basically this, each thing has a certain probability. You can you can estimate the number of chains of three neurons that you would get if they were just connected randomly. That's right. right. And so what you what you're saying is if you do one higher order statistic that we know not just how the probability of each individual connection but uh, probabilities of I guess pairs of connections okay. essentially in some second order if we specify that thing and then just let the rest of the stuff be random then empirically we should we we can predict what the probabilities of various three cell combinations are and four and, and five, four and, five and whatever and it's an empirical question about whether the actual probabilities that you see are consistent with what you generate from that Lower level rule and just make things random. That's right. Um, and so that's the that's I presume what you're talking about going and we were going to go measure uh, statistics of networks. That's right. And, and look at things and whether that's reasonable. That's right. So how many n do you need to do that? You need a lot of uh, yeah. So one of the problems has been up until now people have been patch clamping two cells and looking to see if they're connected. You stimulate one, you look to see if the other cell responds. Um, and then you do the opposite. And, and the state of the art has been that p- 
people can patch clamp up to 12 cells. I think Henry Markram has the, the record of this. And then in 12-cell networks, you have a lot of potential pairwise connections, and you can measure how many are, are there or not, and then maybe how they change over time. So I think they've actually patch clamped 12 cells and then repatch seven of them several hours later to see if they, those connections, but still some, a limited number of connections in that, um, was becoming, um, I think an important, uh, new development is to do these things optically. And, and one possible way is to patch clamp a cell and then stimulate it and then use calcium imaging to identify postsynaptic cells, which allows us to see out of the thousands of neurons in our visual field who who is actually postsynaptic to that cell. Alternatively, you could patch clamp a cell and then use cage glutamate to uncage and stimulate different cells and then move your laser around stimulating different neurons and identify EPSPs or IPSPs in the cell that you're patch clamped to. Uh, which I think has more higher fidelity. And now, now you can go and stimulate maybe hundreds of hundreds of presynaptic cells and then repeat that by just patch clamping other cells and, and really start reconstructing fairly large numbers of ends in a, a network. But we still have to answer questions, and, and we have a student working on this at the moment. Um, if you had a known topology of a network and you start subsampling, how many subsamples do you need in order to achieve an accurate description of the statistics that we're interested in? Uh, and we need to answer that before I think we can get a grant to, to actually go measure these things. So, Okay, well, thanks, Tay. Uh, thanks for being with us today. It's been fun. And uh, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. <laughs> <laughs>